So if you're anything like me, you feel bombarded by messages in the public square. Johnny mentioned this last week. And there are all kinds of people saying things about your faith isn't real, the Bible's not real, it's not true, you're an idiot for needing a crutch to get through life, all of these kinds of things, right? And with social media and all of the ease of communication that we have today, those messages are available anywhere you want to look. And there is no more blatant one, I believe, than in the world of science. Science tells us that the Bible isn't real at all. It doesn't have anything to say about science. And if you are a person who literally believes the Bible, well, you're kind of dumb. That's the message that we get told all the time. So we have a modern priesthood. Scientists have become the new priesthood. Scientists and doctors, which are really a very specific kind of a scientist, right? They're very knowledgeable about a lot of details. Have you guys heard the, uh, the joke about the engineer? An engineer is a person who learns more and more and more about less and less and less until they know practically everything about almost nothing. <laughs> That's the world we live in, okay? There's a, there's a logical fallacy called um, an appeal to authority. And if you spend any time watching debates and different things in YouTube, somebody will be talking about something like me, right? I am a computer scientist by trade. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a cosmologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm, I'm none of those things by training. But I'm also a human being with a brain that God gave me. I can read. I can understand. I can see things. And I can present them to other people. But this appeal to authority fallacy says, if you're not an expert in the exact thing you're talking about, you don't have a leg to stand on. We don't have to listen to you. That's not true either. God says, come let us reason together. So let's, uh, let's continue on. We're going to talk about all six days of creation. Dan gets to do day seven next week. So I get 31 verses. He gets like three. <laughs> We're going to talk about what's created when. We're going to talk about what is morning and evening. We're going to talk a little bit about the design of the universe, a thing called the anthropic principle. We're going to talk about information and entropy. God turns out to be a computer scientist, and I'm going to show you how that works. There's going to be a lot of information here, and a lot of it is, there's going to be a lot of criticizing of evolution, evolutionary Darwinian theory over the other disciplines, because that is the one that's the most blatant against what we believe, and also blatant against what most other scientists believe, and we'll get into that. The present is the key to the past. How many people have ever heard that? That's not true. That is uniformitarianism geology. It says that everything that's going on today explains everything in our history. But there's a whole other idea. It's called catastrophism. And it means that there's been catastrophes over and over in history. And we see those in the world today. Like if you've ever been in a village that's been wiped out by a tsunami, there was a catastrophe. And the rest of the year, it doesn't look like there was a giant you know, 30-foot wall of water that came into their village and destroyed it. It's not the present is the key to the past, and that's part of what we're going to be talking about. We also have Darwinism as applied to society, which has horrible outcomes. Every 
communist dictatorship in the world is blatant violator of human rights. There was over 100 million people in the 20th century murdered under communist regimes. I mean, this is pure Darwinist philosophy. Human life is not valued. Power is valued. So when you take a scientific theory and you, that doesn't have God at its core and you start applying it to society, it all goes bad. There's a bunch of other things I would like to bring up, but I'm not going to get time to bring them up. We all right with the sound thing? I'm hearing echoes. Do I need to do something? Do I need to move it? Okay. The age of the Earth, based on carbon-14, which is how they measure that. Speed of light, actually is slowing down. All the universal constants aren't really constants. They change, and scientists know this. Dimensionality, like we have four dimensions, right? Length, width, height, and time. In the 12th century, there was a rabbi who said there were 10 dimensions that he came up with by studying Genesis. Well, string theory in the 20th century says there are 10 dimensions. And this guy in the 12th century said, you can't know them all directly. You can only observe four. And that's what the string people theory say as well. You can, you can observe four. And the rest you have to observe indirectly through particle accelerators and all these crazy experiments that they do. It's like, wow, that guy was pretty sharp to get that out of Genesis in the 12th century. Let's move on to the verses. Day one. This is Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And we'll try to put all this stuff together. I just want to remember, there is a battle going on between, on the one side, a materialist, undirected, godless, no supernatural anything universe. That's one narrative that's been being told to us. And on our side, we're saying there was an intelligent, all-powerful creator who made everything that we see. That's the two worldviews that we're talking about here. And that's what we want to kind of explore. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want us to ask ourselves that question. Do you believe that verse? As a Bible-believing Christian, I believe that verse. But do you believe it the way it's written in Genesis, which is written as a historical narrative, uses the same connecting words that talk about Abraham leaving his... Ur of the Chaldees and coming to Canaan, and they say he went here, he did this, he did that, he did this. There's a specific way in Hebrew that that's written that says it's a historical narrative. It's relating a thing that happened. This is the exact same thing. We also have the fact that Jesus and all the apostles quoted extensively from Genesis, and they believed it, that it was literal and real. So it's written as a literal, real thing. There is poetry in the Bible. There are metaphors in the Bible. And they have their own specific way of being written that it's easy to understand. When you read it, you're like, oh, that's a metaphor. When God says that the pillars of the earth hold it in a tight foundation, we know that's a metaphor. We know there's not giant pillars sticking out of the bottom of the planet, right? Jesus says he's the water of life. We don't think he's actually like a glass of H2O, right? It's a metaphor. But when you get into this book, this stuff is not written as a metaphor, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So evening and morning were the first day. 
So we have darkness and light on the first day, and we don't have the sun, planets. None of that stuff has been created yet. That gets created later on. So, so these are conceptual things that God created that he's going to fill in the blanks later. And we see that as we go through this. The point, well, a point I want you to get is that everything in our universe, everything is going from a state of order to disorder. There's a term in science called entropy, and that is the measure of disorder. If everything continued on the way it is right now, eventually, billions of years down the road, the entire universe would be cold and dead and nothing would be alive because everything is winding down like a watch spring. That's what's happening that we observe today. The Bible tells us there's a reason for why that's happening. And the Bible tells us that God created it and it was good. It says in verse 1, it was good. And that entropy wasn't happening. That decay wasn't happening. But when Adam and Eve sinned, turned a switch and we start seeing the decay that we fight with now. The second law of thermodynamics and the laws of thermodynamics themselves, they state this for, the, for us, and that's why I was mentioning before. Pretty much every scientific field, you know, they know that those are laws, and they're like, yep, those are true, except evolutionary biology. They don't believe in that law. Everything works in reverse of that law, which turns it more into a religion as opposed to a science when you ignore facts. But we're going to get into that. So the other thing is, is that for anything new to be created, you have to add information, right? If I have a simple thing, like they say a simple one-celled animal, which there's no such thing as a simple cell, but if it wants to turn into a multi-cell animal, well, you got to add information. you got to add a lot of information. Where's the information come from? Darwin should have asked that question. He should have said, not what is the origin of life, where the information come from, because none of these natural processes create information. And also you have to add energy. And we see that every time a process happens, it leaks energy. So where did the energy come from? So we're going to talk about those. So let's go into the formless and void. And I want to, there's a whole theme that's going to run through this. This is Formless and void, these words mean chaotic and unordered, shapeless, and darkness was on the face of the deep, it says, and light had not been created yet. And it says that the Spirit of God, in verse 2, was hovering over the face of the waters. And that word hovering means that he was fluttering or floating or almost brooding. And it's the same word that's used in 2 Peter 1.21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the same word that's being used here. So it's like the Spirit of God was like contemplating all of this. So he created light and he created darkness. We have light, it's a dual nature. It acts crazy. It's a wave and it's a particle. And through history, so light is digital, it's photons, like lasers, right, things like that. But light is also analog. It's waves. And it has all kinds of crazy things that they've experimented over the years. And scientists have been fighting back and forth. And we see this constant thing where Newton said it's a particle. And Newton's the man, right? Everybody's like, Newton's the man. So then Christian Huygens said, no, it's a wave. They ignored him. 
Euler and Ben Franklin, they said it was a wave. They ignored him because, you know, Newton said it was a particle. Sorry, dudes. Um, there was an experiment that was done by a guy named Thomas Young with two slits, and you shine light through a slit, and it turns it into, it looks like a pattern that's on the, on the other side of the slit. And then he put another slit, and then they acted differently, and it, no, it, didn't, it didn't look at all like what they thought it was supposed to look like, because all of a sudden light is working like a particle now. And there's this crazy thing they did in the 50s, uh, Richard P. Feynman, he did with photons, the same kind of an experiment, two slits. The particles of light acted differently depending on whether you turned on a detector or not. So if you had a detector on one of the slits, the light would act normally. If you put a detector on both of the slits, it would act differently. They were like, what is going on? I can't explain this. So light has a lot of very interesting properties. And that's the first thing that God created. But he also hints that darkness is a separate entity. It's light and darkness. I created darkness. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. God is not saying that darkness is the absence of light. He's saying it's a thing in and of itself. Can you think of anything in our universe that is darkness in and of itself? Anyone? Interactive. Go ahead. Anyone? Black hole. Perfect. That is darkness. Light can't even escape from it. You guys thought I was tricking you, didn't you? You're like, he's going <laughs> to... So he said, day and night, like I said, conceptual ideas, because there was no cosmos or heavenly body. Now what's in a day? He said, this is the evening and the morning were the first day. So the word is called yom. It means a 24-hour day. The word yom is used over 2,400 times in the Old Testament. And more than... 70% of them mean a 24-hour day. Then there's some other uses where they mean long ages and other times. But in general, it's a day. But if you go to Exodus 20, verse 9 through 11, God basically tells you it's a 24-hour day, and he literally wrote it in stone because this is stuff that he wrote on the tablets that he inscribed with his finger. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. There's, I mean, it's pretty, pretty obvious what the metaphor is. He's like, I did this in six days, so you guys are going to work for six days and rest on the seventh. And he literally wrote it in stone. So if you can't trust God's word, you're probably in the wrong spot, right? <laughs> we do things differently with a day today. It says from the evening to the morning was a day. This is why the Jewish day begins on sundown of the previous day. So sundown tonight is actually Monday in the Jewish way of reckoning time. Ours technically is midnight to midnight. That's our day. But we really only think of day as when it's light out, right, into the evening, and then you go to bed. So when you're planning your day, you're not starting at midnight, and you're certainly not starting the night before unless you're actually Jewish and you are following the Hebrew cal calendars. But it's also only half of a day because it says from morning or from evening until morning. It doesn't say from evening until evening. So again, we have another kind of a concept here. And there's two words. The word 
for evening is Erev, and the word for morning is Boker. And evening is also synonymous with twilight. And here's the idea that I want to get across that you're going to follow through this whole passage. Evening, when it's, it's getting dark out, things start to lose their resolution. Things become harder to understand and see. They become less distinct. They become more and more unknowable until it's pure dark out, and then you can't see anything. You, know, you hold your hand up, and you're like, ah, I got nothing. Morning is the opposite. It starts to get lighter. Things become more and more able to be seen, more discernible, more understanding of what you're actually seeing in front of you. What you have is you have a state of chaos and disorder moving to a state of order every day through the creation. God is introducing more and more information and more and more order into the universe. And these concepts of Erev and Boker are telling us this is what's happening. It isn't a literal 24-hour day by the sun yet because he doesn't even, hasn't even created that yet. But it's definitely a day, and it is definitely a time, because he's also created time in the midst of all of this. So evening and morning was essentially entropy to order. Day two, verse six. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. So he's organizing things. He's introducing more information into the system. He's dividing things. He's creating this thing called the firmament in this particular version. But the Hebrew word is called rakia, and this is the New King James, which means an extended solid surface or an expanse. That's what rakia means. There's a theory that the earth used to have a canopy of water all the way around it, a thick canopy. And this was first proposed by people who believed in the biblical flood geology and the biblical flood understanding, saying that this was how all this water was able to come down for so long and rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But also, geologists who have done ice core sampling up in uh, the Antarctica and the Arctic, they also have come up with that same idea that there was this layer of canopy because they can tell what the atmosphere was like when the ice was laid down. So that's, every time you read something in the scripture, if you do enough digging, you find that the world around us reflects what was in the scripture. You find that the Bible actually turns out to be true. And there's all kinds of scientific discoveries that are foreshadowed in the Bible. When you look at the discovery and then you read what it says, you're like, huh, that could be, that could be what that means. Now, you can't say for 100% certainty, but it's, it's really pretty amazing. This is kind of a hard verse because we don't really know what firmament means 100%. So it's hard to really interpret what this expanse between the waters and the waters and all of that. And heaven can mean the atmosphere, it can mean the stars in the sky, it can mean the throne of God. So what all is he separating here? We're not, we're not quite sure. But like I mentioned before, Jesus is called the living water, but it's not H2O. So we need to understand that these firmaments, as he divides these waters, he's still in 
some amount of concept as he's providing order and getting rid of chaos on the earth. It's, he's, he's making it from formless and void to not formless and void. So, so far in day two, what has been created? Electrons, protons, atoms, the water molecule. Those are all things we study in high school science and grade school science these days. He created all those. The standard model of physics says there's 200 different types of particles underneath the atom. Things like hadrons, leptons, quarks, neutrinos, all these crazy words they come up with. How many states of matter are there? Four, good man. <laughs> right? We have solid, liquid, gas, and plasma. What's plasma? Plasma is like chaos, superheated. Things are just not cohesive. And it's very interesting because those go in the order of order to entropy, four states of matter. Highly ordered solids to completely chaotic plasma on the other end. And then when you get down to neutrinos and quarks and all that stuff, you're talking about quantum physics, which is really crazy stuff. And it's got some interesting properties that just boggle your mind, but we're not going to get into that because when I practiced this message, I went for an hour and 10 minutes. And I'm not going to do that to you. So water also has its amazing properties. Like why does, ice, why does, wa why does water in a solid ice, why does it float? No other thing does that. When you take a liquid and turn it into a solid, they don't float. What is water? Because of a unique property where it expands and creates this crystalline structure, makes it less dense. It's opposite of the rest of the physical properties of all the different things that we know about. It acts differently. But God used it as one of the first things he did, and it's essential to our survival for sure on Earth. It's an exception. The other thing to notice about day two is that God doesn't say it's good. He says it in day one and all the, all the other days. But on day two, he doesn't say that. And day two is actually a Monday, so. <laughs> and then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind. According to its kind. We're going to see according to its kind with the plants now, and we see it with the animals later. That's got some interesting implications in terms of evolution and biodiversity. Whose seed is in itself. So... Yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. So here we have dry land, seas, plants, which means he just created the whole DNA coding sequence, which is a crazy intricate computer system inside of every cell, and this is where I said God is a computer scientist, because he can do things in that system that with all the technology we have, we don't come close to. Being able to 
replicate an entire structure of pieces inside of a cell multiple times a second, perfectly, error-free, self-correcting, self-healing. Our computers are definitely not self-correcting. They do a little bit, but not very much. How many people have ever seen a blue screen of death? What does that mean, right? Computers, you can, you can take this and a strand of RNA molecules will be being copied and there's another machine in the cell that's checking and making sure that there's no errors. And if there's an error, it just cuts it out, fixes it. I mean, it's like unbelievable. We can't build stuff like this. Bishop Paley in the 1800s said he is an example of a watch and he had a watch. And how many people in this room can actually build a mechanical watch? Like, you know how to do it, anybody. I'm not talking about electronic, I'm just talking about a wind-up watch with all the little gears and stuff in there. Super complicated, right? It's nothing compared to the wrist that you wear the watch on. The wrist is so much more complicated. All these bones in this motion and the touch, the nerves. I mean, this is crazy amazing. And as you look down, you see all of these crazy machines that are in our molecules. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But on this one, I want to focus on one thing, and this is the idea of life in the Bible, and that plants are not considered alive in the Bible. Plants don't feel pain or die in the sense that animals and humans do. They don't have blood. And God said the life is in the blood, which is why they sacrificed animals in order to atone for sin. Plants are never subject of the Hebrew words nefesh cheim, which means the soul of life. Nefesh is the soul. And chayim means alive. He doesn't talk about plants about that. They're not described as living creatures, as humans, land animals, and sea creatures are. And the words are used to describe their termination is like withering or fading, as opposed to dying. So plants are not, the reason that we're going to, I want to bring that up here where he creates plants is because later on it's going to apply when we start talking about sin and what death is and the difference between somebody who believes that God used evolution to create the universe or that it happened versus what the Bible's actually saying. So we want to keep that in the back of our mind that plants aren't considered alive in the same way. But I want to bring out this huge system on the earth that is the plant-animal symbiosis. Right? Everybody's heard of photosynthesis. Right? So plants are taking in carbon dioxide and giving off oxygen. Animals are taking in oxygen and giving off carbon dioxide. Right? What happens if you remove either the plants or the animals from the planet? The other half dies, like real soon. It doesn't take long. This is a giant system all over the planet that is in balance with each other. And if you think that an undirected, non-intelligent process somehow was able to make that all work, I mean, what happened? There was too much oxygen because the plants were there, and so then the universe decided it needed something to consume the oxygen. It doesn't make any sense. But we see those kinds of systems in the large and in the small. Let's move on to day four. Then God said, this is verse 14, for those of you following along at home, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. There's that firmament of the heavens again. Now it's talking on a more universal scale. 
not on the earth. So dividing the waters from the waters was on the earth, and now this firmament in the heavens is all of the cosmology that we see. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens and give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So again, I would contend, more information, more structures, more laws are being added into the universe as the days of creation go on. We have a fine-tuned universe, and this is where I'm going to bring up this term called the anthropic principle. Has anyone ever heard of this before? A couple people, right? Basically, there's a lot of different ways that you can um, state the anthropic principle. There's all kinds of details. If you go to the Wikipedia article, it's going to take you a couple hours to get through everything. But it basically um, boils down to... The universe is the way it is, otherwise we wouldn't be here to observe it, right? So what they're saying is, is that the universe appears to have been designed just for us, but it wasn't really. That's, what the, that's the scientific postulation, right? That it's not really designed, it all got here by chance, but it seems like it was designed because everything is perfectly tuned for us to be here. And if we, wouldn't, we weren't here, then we wouldn't have this discussion. Okay, that makes sense. So let's go on. The fine-tuned universe. Let's talk about that. How fine-tuned is the universe? We have four forces. We have gravity, electromagnetism, strong and weak nuclear force. Those are for the atoms, keeping everything together. All of those forces are in play in the entire universe. The way that the planets, the Earth revolves around the sun, the way that we stick to the planet because of gravity, the way that elements form based on how the chemical reactions go on. If you changed gravitational coupling one way or the other, nothing works. Stronger and weaker nuclear force, you either get all heavy elements or you get only light elements. You don't get everything that we have in between. Um, the ratio of proton to electron mass, our distance from the sun, our surface gravity, the thickness of the Earth's crust, the Earth's rotation period, our axial tilt, the reflectivity of our, of our atmosphere, our magnetic field, our CO2 and water vapor levels, our ozone level, and hundreds more. Every one of those things, if you changed them by just a little bit, then we wouldn't live. We would be done. And that's one of the things that scares me about all of the stuff going on related to climate change is I'm worried that a bunch of really smart scientists are going to try to affect the CO2 level in our atmosphere because it's a, it's a demon now. CO2's bad. Only CO2's not bad. And if you change the CO2 level in our atmosphere appreciably, like less than one-tenth of one percent, all the plants die. I mean, it's not, you don't want to mess with this stuff. It is perfectly tuned by the creator. So we have to be careful about what we're doing. This is the same kind of thing as, you know, let's do genetic experiments and create new types of creatures. You're starting to play with stuff you probably don't want to play with. 
my opinion. S signs in the heavens. Job 38, 31. Can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? What does that mean? Nobody knows what that means, right? Only we look in the heavens, and there is the Pleiades, and there is, the Orion, the, uh, cluster, the, there is Orion, which are two constellations. These two constellations happen to be gravitationally linked, and they're the only two that we know about. And most astronomers don't even know this. It's kind of, you got to go look it up. So God says something in Job as he's telling Job his 77 statements that he makes to Job about, do you know this? Do you know that? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did that? And he says, can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? And there's actually a gravitational linking between those two places. Like, that's amazing. There's a bunch of that stuff in Job. Like the water cycle of water going around and you know, evaporating and coming back down and doing all that, that was discovered in the 1800s. It's like laid out in Job when you read through it. It's just, it's crazy. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So would you guys put up the second slide? We're going to talk about the zodiac. It's called the Hebrew Maseroth, that's not the second slide. There you go, thank you. Okay, everybody's heard about the zodiac, right? Constellations, and what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be the progression of the sun through um, the heavens. But all the ancient societies in the world, they all had the same names for the constellations, which is really odd. Because when I look up in the night sky, unless someone tells me that is Virgo, and you can see the virgin, I'm like, I don't see a virgin. I don't see a woman. I just see a bunch of lights in the sky. I mean, I can see the Big Dipper. Yes, I can see the Big Dipper. <laughs> but when you go through the 12 zodiac, in Hebrew it's called the Maseroth, it tells a story, very colorful story. And all of these ancient civilizations also had these stories. And these stories were the virgin giving birth to a child, and the king in Leo, who's destroying the giant serpent, also known as the dragon, Draconis. I mean, the entire story of redemption is written out in the stars. And this story has been passed down for thousands and thousands of years. And there is a book. I brought a number of books, actually. E.W. Bullinger. The Witness of the Stars. There's a bunch of other books written by other people. This was the first one. And there's video series out there. There's a preacher named D. James Kennedy you may or may not have heard of, but he also has a long thing on this. And basically, it walks through doing research, what are the ancient names, and what were the actual stories that were told, and the entire story of creation and humanity through the gospel is written in the stars, literally. Where those stories got started? Well, probably Adam and Eve, for all I know. Passed them down through Noah, and here we are. <laughs> it's not astrology. It's history. Which is, again, it's crazy. All the 12 signs are linked to the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, there's a lot there. It's another rabbit hole. But I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Day five. Then God said, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures. 
and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So now the firmament of the heavens is talking about the earth again. The birds are flying across it. It's the sky. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. This is the first charge. I mean, we've all heard that God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Well, before Adam and Eve were created, God told the birds and the sea creatures to basically be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's the first charge. There's another one that comes in later. This infers birth, does it not? Be fruitful and multiply. That's reproduction. Does it infer death? That's the question. There are lots of people who say, yep, obviously if they were being born, they had to die. But we're going to see that that's not really the case. So DNA. Everybody's heard it. Who's, who's not heard of DNA? Raise your hand. Thank you. Okay. Watson and Crick, 1953. What he determined that was so amazing about it is that it was chemical. It wasn't the chemical reactions between these. There's 20 amino acids. And there's basically a four-letter code. And inside of your cell, there is basically a library with a bunch of templates. And it directs, there's power plants, there's an assembly line, all these things are inside of the cell. And around the whole cell is this really complicated membrane that basically has a doorkeeper that won't let certain things in and keeps things out. And it's in itself is ridiculously complicated. But these, these pieces, this library of templates is being read all the time, constantly. Like, we're the most read library. Our cells are reading this, DNA, this code, it's literally code, and creating new things. And what does it create? Well, it creates molecules. But it creates little machines, because I don't know if you knew this, I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, I, wow. So what happens is when these chains get put together, they fold into a 3D shape. They're not just some flat piece of, I don't know, goo. <laughs> they fold into a 3D shape, and that 3D shape is a machine. And those machines do stuff. They do work inside of the body, and they differentiate into other, other things, right? So you might have a skin cell or a hair follicle or a piece of your eye or... Joe's attitude, or whatever it is. All of those molecules are being created constantly inside of your body. It's an error-correcting, three out of four binary code. It is self-replicating and error-free. There are three billion elements defining the manufacture and the arrangement of hundreds of thousands of molecular machines. That's what's happening with life. They're selected from over 200 protein. Each of them involve 3,000 atoms in three-dimensional configurations. And they all come from this original alphabet of 20 amino acids. So now you can put that other slide up. What does that look like? It's off the top of your head. What does it look like? What is it? A motor. A motor. Looks like a motor. 
It is a motor, but it looks like a futuristic motor, doesn't it? It looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. That's a motor on a bacterium. It's called a flagellar motor. It, is, it allows bacteria to move. And if you take any piece of that motor away, it doesn't work. Which means that it's kind of like a mousetrap. What part of a mousetrap can you take apart and have it still catch mice? Anything, you remove the spring, you remove the plate, the bar, the trigger, they all have to be there at once. And this is the concept known as a scientific theory called irreducible complexity or intelligent design. And what biochemists find is that in the body, in the cell, in all of these things, there are structure after structure after structure that if you take any part of it away, it doesn't work anymore. But evolution says that everything was built up piecemeal, one little piece, one little piece, and then this other piece comes along, and then they get together and decide unintelligently that they're going to be created together, right? And they're going to work somehow. So it's like, how do you evolve part of a machine like this, like the flagellar motor? This stuff is all through us. It's amazing. And I already talked a little bit about the cell, and let's move on to day six. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be as food. Also to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the six days." So here we have land creatures, we have man, we have God telling them to be fruitful and multiply. And I wanted to bring up that word, though, that phrase, according to its kind. This is, this is biodiversity, right? All the species that we see today. So you think about a wolf and a dog, right? And they say, well, they're the same species. And what's the difference between a wolf and a dog? Well, there's a lot of little differences between a wolf and a dog. But what you have to look at is back in the garden during the creation, there was kind of like the archetype perfect canine was created with all of its genetic information, a male and a female. And whenever you breed, you give genetic information to your children, but you don't, they don't, you can't get back the parents. The information is gone. So you give, the mom gives half and the dad gives half and there's, now there's this new creature and whatever, you know, hair, eyes, all these different features of that creature, that creature cannot then have 
a mate and then get the parents back. The information that was in the parents is now only partially transferred to the children. So that's how you can go from the perfect image of a canine all the way down to, which has all the genetic information, down to a poodle, which virtually has zero genetic information. <laughs> okay. Um, we, this is a part of Darwinian theory that works. And there's all the stuff about Mendel and the genetic breeding programs, right? We know how to make animals be bigger, breed for certain kinds of hair. We have designer dogs. We have all these things that we can do. Why? Because we can look at the genetic information and we can say, well, if I take this long-haired dog and this long-haired dog, I'm going to get long-haired dogs. But if I don't want long-haired dogs, I'm going to take this long-haired dog and the short-haired dog, and I'm going to keep breeding this until it's got short hair. That works. That's, that's how it works. But it works because the genetic information is being pulled out of every successive generation. That's what's happening. There's less information in every single generation. That applies to us. So really, we're probably a lot stupider than our ancestors because our brains don't have as much genetic information as they used to. Sorry. That's why we have computers and external storage so we don't have to forget everything every morning. So that's the kind. There are the people that study the flood, and we'll get into that during the flood part of Genesis. There's a lot of science that goes in there. Here is a two-volume set of books by a PhD in geophysics that dissects everything you ever wanted to know about geology and then some, and relates it to flood geology and catastrophism on the Earth. So it's called Earth's Catastrophic Past. So there's like, you know, real deal scientists in six days, 50 scientists who became Christians, and what scientific area of their study caused them to look for God. And every one of their testimonies is in this book. So this isn't like we're just a bunch of crazies sitting on the side. There's people that are studying the world around them, and they're coming to the conclusion that the Bible is true. We already know that. So when they get to the top of their journey, we're going to be sitting up there going, what took you so long? So now let's talk a little bit about death before sin. We only have a few minutes left, and then the worship team will be coming up. This is one of the big ones, where uh, a person who believes that God used evolution or that evolution is real, God says in his word that he is going to restore the universe back to the way it was created when he said it was very good. If death, struggle, and evolution existed while, when God created, and he used that as part of his creative mechanism, then that means death and struggle were part of the creation. And so that means that the state that we find ourselves in has always been that way. And we don't call this good, not that part of it. So when God says he's going to restore the entire universe back to the good state and get rid of decay and get rid of death, why? What would be the point of that? If you're going to restore it back to the way it was in the beginning and the beginning was full of death and destruction, 
then we're back to death and destruction? Theologically, that makes no sense. What is being redeemed? If everything that's going on right now is a normal process that God created and used, what is being redeemed? So if you're a person that believes in God and you believe in the Bible, but you also believe in billions of years and the fact that God used evolution, which there's a lot of Christians that believe that, it's called theistic evolution, then you have to answer the theological question of why is God telling us? The other thing is, is Adam, Jesus Christ, and all the apostles believe that Adam was a real guy. Matter of fact, we have his genealogy. We have the first Adam and the last Adam. We have the Adam that brought sin into the world, and we have Jesus. There is a ton of theology that we believe and we preach in lots of churches that depend on the fact that Adam was real, that sin really happened, the fall really happened. And if, if it was some other process, then there wasn't really probably an Adam. He would be like some sort of a mythical figure, and it would be really hard to chase his genealogy. So that's another issue that we have to deal with. And God tells us in this section that everybody was a vegetarian, including all the animals, and they weren't actually allowed to eat meat until Genesis chapter 9. But it was the fruit, so there's two different kinds, right? There's cultivated plants that we grow, and then there's trees, right? And they have their own seeds, and there's other kinds of plants that have their own seeds. And that, was the main, that was the main food that was available to us. So since the Bible does not consider plants as dying in the same way, then them eating plants wasn't considered to be death. It's very consistent. It's very consistent in the text, what God says. So there wasn't any death until God killed the first thing. When Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal because blood had to be shed to atone for their sin, and he covered them with their animal skins because now all of a sudden, knowing good and evil, they knew they were naked. So if you, if you want to deal with long ages and evolution being used, you got a problem in your own theology. It's hard to reconcile what God is going to redeem this world from and why he's going to wipe every tear and get rid of pain and sorrow, like he says in Revelation 21.4, if it's always been that way. And what would it say about a God's character who used the process of death and struggle for millions of years in order, and called it good. These are questions that we don't think about very often, that I think we should. Day seven, worship team, come on up if you won't mind. No evening and no morning. God was done with all the laws of the universe, the creation of DNA and all the things and these different structures and processes that he's put in place that we can observe, and he, uh, he rested. So we see an evidence of design all through things. The whole universe is kind of set up just so that we can be here. We don't have any natural processes in the world that create information. They just break things. That's what happens. Mutations break things. All this information points to a mind, 
And that mind added that information and added energy. And when you start reading the scriptures and you start looking at things, you see that the Bible foreshadows a lot of the scientific things that we have come up with in the last 100 years or so, or 500 years. So the question you have to ask yourself is, can you take it actually literally? When you say you believe the Bible and you say you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and Jesus is telling you that he believes Moses was real and that Adam was real, what part of the Bible do you get to just throw out and say, eh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pay attention to that? Genesis chapter 1 is extremely important. Matthew 24, 37 through 39, Matthew 23, 35, Matthew 19, 4 and 5. These are Jesus talking about Genesis. Romans 5, 15 through 18, that's Paul talking about Genesis. All the genealogies that go all the way back, all that, all those things that the, the authors of the Bible believe that. And so we have to say, do we believe it or are we smarter than them? We don't need to believe that anymore, those poor primitives. They weren't primitive. They knew what was going on. Ask yourself also, where did the information come from? Where did all this knowledge, all this information on all this creation, where did it come from? So let's worship together and sing songs about the creation, more than likely. Yeah? Okay, good. And uh, we have communion set up on the sides. We have giving boxes. If you would like to give to Aletheia and the missions that we support, and if you need prayer during worship time and you want to pray or talk to one of us, Joel's here, I'm here, Johnny's floating around over there, Dan is over here, so, and anybody would, would pray with you. So let's worship together. So the biggest thing I really want us to focus on out of all that, a couple things. One is, we can trust this book. God preserved this over thousands of years. If you want to get into a whole other topic, it's called Documentary Evidence, and it tells you all the details about how amazing this book is. We're going to try to do some other classes and or videos on diving into more detail on all these things, because I just like skimmed the service at 20,000 feet. So trusting this Bible, trusting this Word of God, trusting in the Creator who gave it to us, and trusting in Christ, we have to really focus on that first Adam and that last Adam. The fact that we have to struggle with sin, and Jesus gave us a way out of that. And when He tells us He's going to redeem us, He's also going to redeem the universe. It isn't just a spiritual, like ephemeral spirits our physical bodies are going to be redeemed and the physical universe is going to be redeemed that's what he tells us in his word so we don't want to ignore the physical but at the same time we want to understand we can find God in all of these things that we see we can find God in all these amazing creations that he's given us but in the end we have to trust in what Jesus did for us and we have to trust that 
what this book has told us about that is true, and then, then when allow God to come with this Holy Spirit into our hearts and make us into one of his children to actually forgive us for those sins. And yes, we still struggle with sin while we're here, but it's a process, right? God has already won the victory, but it hasn't been completely fulfilled. And why is that? Well, God doesn't live inside of time like we do. He lives outside of it. He created it. He's not bound by it. So the way that he is working, we can't totally understand. That's why everybody says God moves in mysterious ways. Well, he does. But the fact that he's already won the victory through Christ, and we are, in some sense, already glorified and redeemed, we still have to go through this training ground as God makes us into his own unique creations. That's what I'd like us to think about this week. Think about how God is impacting and working in your life and cares about you as an individual, even though all of these other crazy things with the entire universe that he created with his will and holds up by his will. It's like David said, who am I, Lord, and what is my house that you've looked at me? That's the kind of feeling when you start looking at all this. It's like, who are we anyway that you would actually spend time and focus on us and give us this word and do all the things that you do? So let's kind of just keep those things in mind as we continue to worship and do communion.